Power up. Power up. Welcome to Energypreneurs, where I bring to you the exciting new opportunities in solar power, battery, and electric cars. I'm your host, Sohel Hasni. I've been tracking and analyzing these technologies on LinkedIn and Twitter for more than 10 years. Now we meet on podcast. Your footprint is global and you have been involved into solar construction and design all aspects of advisory from owners, engineers to EPC contract as well. So what do you see, what has changed over the years, the last 10 years in terms of solar? What has significantly changed? I think we we moved from an age of the feeding tariffs, which Mm -hmm. were deemed to be expensive, to Mm -hmm. be something that was not affordable by all. So something that was only for the rich countries to something that is actually readily available, very fast to be deployed, affordable, and even more, the cheapest source of energy for almost every country. And that has changed completely how solar is perceived across the globe. And I think that was, for me, the major change from, let's say, the first age until 2010 to this second decade from 2010 to 2020. The changes in the feed-in tariff has been the most significant changes that you have seen because before it was driven by incentives. Now you don't need any more incentives, right? I wouldn't call it... uh, what's the right word, the corrupted idea that feeding tariffs were necessary. I think India was the the first country that boldly said no to feeding tariff, Mm -hmm. that said, no, we want to discover the tariff. And I think that is a a major step that probably some countries did not even understand at the time, because if we look at around 2010, there were so many countries going on the feeding tariff, um, you know, kind of way, and there were very few actually doing something different. And, and India was one of them that actually challenged it and said, we want to discover the tariff. We, How do you know it's 15 cents? How do you know it's 14 cents? We want to see, we want to spark also the industry to uh, to increase, to, to be better performing for investors to actually, you know, be able to then, you know, even get lower returns, but actually get larger projects. So all of that changed completely. And when we saw the cost reduction that India has seen in terms of tariffs. And, and also South Africa is another good example where we started on the feeding tariff, but we also saw quite a substantial potential of decrease. And I think those are very good examples that you know feeding tariff was not the only option to develop renewables. And once that was open, I think it just changed completely um, the, the, the scale, the opportunities, and, and how the market actually developed since then. Yeah, I mean, it's a chicken and egg. Feeding tariff was necessary at one point to attract people. When you have too many people in the room, of course, then feeding tariff didn't work because you only want to buy X hundred megawatt hour at that price and so many people are offering. So you have to ultimately at one point run some sort of auctions to say, okay, now everyone being equal, how do we differentiate you? Because there are too many suppliers in the room, right? And India started the first. So so that is one major change that, yes, you don't need feed-in tariff anymore. Any other change attitude-wise? I think solar attitude-wise also changed, you know? People initially are thinking of very small projects now. Sky is the limit, right? <laughs> yeah, the sky. I think, again, it was linked with, it was expensive, 
we were looking at smaller projects. The larger projects came when very large developers came together. So for example, we had here in Portugal, the largest at the time solar project in the world. It had around 50 megawatts. That for us now makes us laugh when we think about the largest project being 50 megawatts or even 60. But that was a substantial size at the time. So we're talking about 2006. It was a huge project that people would now, you know, again, as you said, we're looking at five megawatts as being already quite substantially, you know, a big size. And then 60 was like this huge capacity. And of course, I think that what you said before, once developers, investors um, started to look at solar in a different way, started to see this more in a competitive fashion and that you could actually scale up and with the scale up, you could get benefits. I think that changed completely the sizes and we moved from a niche market or a more, let's say, privileged um, feeding tariff based approach to a more, you know, democratic approach where, of course, as you said, sky is the limit. We now develop solar parks. Myself, I have been involved in the development of Barla Solar Park in India with a target of 3000 megawatts. So that, that's a huge size. It's, it's, it's something that I would say it's massive and maybe in 10 years time, we still consider 3000 megawatts of solar as quite a substantial, massive amount of power developed in a single location. So yes, I think the attitude of course, may be a consequence of all of this, but certainly also uh, an ingredient in the changes that we've seen. Yeah, 3000 megawatt is huge. Like uh, if you stack up all the countries in the world in terms of their total install capacity, you will reach, I don't know, maybe the top 50 countries or top 60, 70 countries have over 3000 megawatt and above install capacity, right? You will, the slope will be super fast dropping in. Okay. Total install capacity in the Philippines, I think is about 25,000 megawatt. What I'm saying, if you stack up all the countries in the world in terms of total install capacity, 3000 will still have significant number of countries. Exactly. Because total exactly. country capacity is below 3000 megawatt, right? Yes, yes, exactly. I think we still kind of rank countries whether they reach the one gigawatt. So clearly three gigawatts is something substantially above substantial. the one gigawatt level, yes. So when you are, just for the sake of comparison, when you are involved in that 50 megawatt project in 2006, we are looking at a levelized feed-in tariff for 20 cents or more at the time? More, 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 26 cents. 26 euro cents, cents uh, euro cents, which is about 30 cents, maybe a kilowatt hour. Well, it depends, of course, on the exchange yeah, rate. Course, exchange. No, no, say, okay, whatever, just yeah. around 30 cents. And today, I think Chile had one of the lowest in the world, right? Well, Lisbon, Lisbon, sorry, Portugal currently is the, the record, um, the one. So we, we have 1.1 cent. <laughs> so, so we gone from 30 cents to 1.1 cent. So this is the... And this, this 1.1 cent is how many megawatt install capacity? So you would be very surprised the 10 megawatt project. So if, if you come on and say, oh, but you need scale to reach that. No, you don't actually need scale. But I think, you know, well, we, we might choose to discuss that over our conversation, but I think auctions um, are a very particular, as feeding tariffs have their own ways of being looked at and being explored. Auctions also have its own way of being explored. And there are ways to understand the 1.1 cent in, in Portugal, in the context of Portugal. But certainly, just for the sake of comparison, it has been a ride, um, as you said, from, from, you know, 
from 27 or 26 all the way down to 1.5 even if we take two cents it's it's an amazing ride in any way so it's 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 a huge huge decrease yeah, yeah, I mean, it, and and also the mindset, as you said, at that time, fifty megawatt solar was considered huge. Now, even three thousand megawatt, people say, yeah, okay. Now, <laughs> in terms of construction period, do you see that the construction period has shrunk as well? The fifty megawatt, how many months did it take then, and how many months will the three thousand megawatt take? Oh, yes, I think, well, it wasn't like the tariffs, like the 30 to 2, but the time shrink. I think we, we got more professional, people understood um, how to go fast. Um, we have, of course, logistics-wise, um, you know, modules arrive much faster than before. We have China churning gigawatts of modules every month. So, you know, the availability is, is clearly, you know, if, if we were to compare maybe not the 2006 scenario, but maybe if we go to 2010, that was a time when Italy, for example, we opened up their feeding tariffs and we had a crazy 2010. So for, for, for people to understand, modules at that time were priced at 2.2 US dollars per watt peak, which is something that is 10 times what, actually is 100 times what is, sorry, 10 times what is the, the current price. And then we had problems. We had problems of projects that got stalled, projects that were not able to be completed. We had extensions of time from the government. But I think, you know, when we look now, we, we do projects 50, 60 megawatts in record time in a couple of months. It, it's really, um, it's, it has been mastered. Um, and it's not, anyway, it's not rocket science, that's for sure. So I think that that is something that we have seen also some improvements, though, of course, not as, as dramatic as we have seen in terms of tariffs. So 50, 60 megawatt now people can do in a few months, right? Yes. And a 3,000 megawatt, what is the estimated construction time? Well, we, we have the example in Egypt, the Ben Ban project, which was not 3,000, but um, 1,200. It took, um, you know, not even, you know, slightly more than 12 months when it is, we're talking about construction, of course, as, as you probably know, financing takes its own time. But after that, when we look at construction, we, we, we see that, you know, each, each project and in parallel, because of course the, the 1,200 megawatts was constructed in parallel by several companies were possible to be done within uh, more than, um, than, than one year. So we, 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 and then we have projects done under 12 months. So that, that's, um, I would say, a substantial, um, you know, progress that the industry has made as well. So let me throw in a hypothetical case to you. I will appreciate your comments. I have a project as a staff of Asian Development Bank in a country. We are rehabilitating four turbines, 1200, sorry, 300 megawatt each, total 1200. So I was arguing it will take four years to build those plants. You know, you can do only one unit each year, and this is about 400 tons. It has to come from thousands of kilometers away. So one of the argument I had was that maybe the 1200 megawatt solar can be done in parallel and let run down the hydro until it drops dead. Because, <laughs> And you may be better off because this hydro will take four years to do. And of course, you can just use the reservoir without the water or you can do slowly. But if you need Solar is predictable, you know exactly if I invest now, I'll have it done by then and cost-wise may be cheaper as well. 
because that 1200 megawatt is costing us hundred, just above hundred million dollars. Of course, okay. solar will be still uh, 1200 megawatt will be what? Uh, six seven hundred million dollars, six seven hundred million, yes. definitely. But the revenue of this four years revenue—I mean, the hundred megawatt that you build today—you will get the revenue for next three years. If you take that account, it's almost at par. Plus, solar—you can do modular, right? You don't have to do everything today. So, how you react to a proposal like that, being a solar developer? Well, I think I know the country actually. So. You know, I'm from my own kind of background. I didn't say that I'm, I'm a physicist. And I always believe that the mix is more important than the single source. Mm -hmm. All the, the credits given to, to solar, not, nothing taking it out of solar. But I think hydro comes as very important asset in the grid to integrate renewables. Absolutely. And so taking, taking it out, taking hydros out, you know, building new hydros, especially large hydros, I have... A, well, I have a, a, a critical view on that, so we should definitely look at that in very, you know, detail. So maybe smaller hydro projects are much better than a huge, large project has, in, you know, tremendous impacts in terms of environmental. But you know, I would say that in that particular case, and knowing, I think solar and hydro would be an excellent combination, and not taking one out, and of course, uh, the dropping bed. <laughs> the hydro is the the part that I consider a bit maybe. Um, not not so so necessary to to put on the table, but definitely, in that particular country, you know, coupling makes sense. And then solar in that particular reservoir, which is incredibly large, I think it could actually be a very important opportunity for floating. And if not only floating, it could be a combined uh, between floating and also ground mounted. But I think you know, again, if the country is the one I'm thinking is a mountainous country. It is very hard to find actually uh, flat places. Uh, we've done actually ch ch studies before to identify sites for development of ground-mounted PV. It wasn't easy. And when we look at floating, things actually become quite interesting what we could do in a single location. So definitely the idea in itself, bring on solar, definitely. Um, the, the part of, of the hydro and the investment on hydro, that one, I think it's still necessary. How you want to do it over time that probably of course requires more in detail analysis yeah i mean you can also use the because the reservoir is already there you can always use that as a pump storage as well so just uh, pumping some so that can also work if you make it a hybrid system as you said because the same country uh, okay let's not name the country right now <laughs> they also have planned to do a very large 2000 megawatt hydro and i looked at the valley and the number of people that needs to be shifted to build a reservoir then of course the geopolitical things as well so i looked at it saying even if we put all the right intention to build this project and mobilize the two billion or three billion, whatever it will need, maybe a better option to start stage development of a solar because to do a two gigawatt in that valley, I don't think there will be a problem, but at least modular, you will not be flooding people and then you will get the certainty because sun is not going to run away. But nice. because of climate change and others, some uh, rivers might change. So yeah, there is an argument for those sort of analysis definitely, no? Yes, of course. I think more and more, I think we, we you know, on, on floating only, and since we are also involved with ADB on this large central Asia project on floating, 
and, and other projects that I've been involved in. I think we, we also need to understand solar floating soil, not only linked at hydros, it's certainly something that you could do, but the fact that you have actually a flat surface with a very interesting property that it's cooler, and so it influences the, the performance of the modules, enables a surface that otherwise you would not consider it to be developable uh, by solar. And, and so that to me increases even more the attraction. So the fact that you have eventually a hydro, there is also infrastructures that you can tap and, and evacuation infrastructure is obviously necessary. You can also develop further if you need, but let's say that there is an ecosystem of, of, of things, of ingredients that make this opportunity very interesting. Mm. So are you involved in any project where actually government or the owner of the project has decided to go solar in place of building a large, especially hydro project or coal plant? Well, coal plant, yes, plenty coal of them. I think yeah. coal, yes, coal is no longer, and I'm gladly so, no longer in the in the table, I think some stubborn countries, or maybe I would say they have their own resources, they have their own reasons, I guess. But I think more, less and less. So I think we have more and more countries utilizing land that was otherwise earmarked for coal. There was also land that was previously used on coal that has been decommissioned. And you have example of my country, we will be decommissioning coal by 2025. The first one will go out in 2022. So we are already looking at ways to utilize those tracts of land, the land was actually used by the power plants to actually potentially develop solar, potentially develop green hydrogen. So there's a lot of opportunities coming on that you can use that land for. In terms of hydro, I think, you know, really between one and the other, I think we, I haven't, I'm trying to remember, I, I don't think there was, has been any uh, government or client that has actually chose one over the other. There are clearly lots of clients that understand that it's a symbiosis, so they work very well together. But I think the example that you ask, building a new one versus developing solar, that one hasn't come. But I think, you know, again, there are potentially different type of investments, but certainly they might consider, as you were hinting, I, said, I think, instead of developing a large capacity of hydro, maybe develop much less maybe spread over stages and, of course, leverage it with solar if that is possible. Those are clearly something that we have seen in, in some clients. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually meeting the client tomorrow. I think I'm going <laughs> to put a proposal saying rather than this 2000 megawatt, can we do a study for, can we do a 2000 megawatt that can be done within three years? I think that's very easy to say because the studying the feasibility of that giga project will take more than three years. So that's maybe something I'll propose uh, when we're meeting the client tomorrow. Because similarly, another project, that's again one of my projects where the hydro is sort of a vertical axis turbine. So it's a very shallow water because there's not much head, but there's a lot of current. So where to rehabilitate, I think 218 megawatt might cost more than $100 million, we don't know. Still, we're going through a bidding process. In that case, solar really makes sense because they have a lot of flat land around the area. Even just the embankment there, that can, because 100 megawatt, not a huge amount, right? right. So that's something I was looking at it saying, okay, I was not involved during the feasibility study and the prices 
have changed in the last five years that this project have been in the making. Mm -hmm. So I think those alternatives are happening, no? I think definitely, I think the more and more integrated and, and I think the role of, of development banks, ADB and others is really to, uh, to come up with, with ideas as the one you are suggesting to say, you know, why not something hybrid? Why not something leverage? Why don't we actually take advantage of other sources? We're talking about solar, but it is also true that it can actually be in a place where wind couples very well with it. We, we have that in, in Portugal mm -hmm. as well, where we have coupled wind with hydro. And, you know, it, it can be in the mountains where you can actually install a very nice wind park, which is not far from it. And you can actually also leverage wind with uh, hydro. And, and in this case, it could be wind, solar and hydro, which is perfect combination for even 24-hour generation perfectly, you know, across the, you know, during the whole year. So I think, you know, ADB and other development banks coming on board with ideas more than Oh, 2,000 megawatts of hydro. Okay, this is something we have done. We have 100 studies done on that. It's another 101. No, let's do something more creative and look at what we really want to see in, in, I would say, the present, but let's talk about the future, which is integrated renewable energy as a source, as a main pillar in terms of development of energy for, for the country. So clearly, uh, please do, do suggest that. And then I think the more and more that comes on board, it becomes to be something of a trend. Other, other, other banks, other, other developers will start looking at that and think. And I think that's, that's the way. That's the way forward. That's the way to increase renewable energy penetration. Yeah, I mean, I think the global attitude has also changed. One of my very first projects 20 years ago when I joined EDB was, again, in a large client, very large hydropower, 30,000 people was rehabilitated. I went and saw the resettlement sites and yes, people have been paid for their land. They are moved to, but people are not happy. Their right. generations of burial grounds are now underwater. I will show that's where my house was. Mm. The development, we paid those prices in all developed countries and developing countries, but now of course, the risk profile also has changed. We have an alternative, right? I went exactly. to Sarawak when Bakun was developed. I mean, it's okay. I mean, but when we were driving through on a speedboat with all the trees that has been just cleared up on a reservoir and you go through and you say, oh my God, so many trees, but that happens everywhere. And because we have air conditioner turned and home, we had no alternative before, right? Right. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, now because of floating solar and everything else, so we have alternative. That's fantastic. And you are working on all those cutting edge projects. Yes, so we, of course, I think people like us um, have to be the ones supporting, you know, how to, to move forward. Um, I think countries, we, we, we all know the, the challenge of, of our generation. I, I take the young people that, you know, go to the streets, demonstrate, complain rightly so and and you know it's it's my generation i'm you know, it's it's i i am one of the few probably that you know kind of graduated uh, with a master's degree on solar just on 2000 you know kind of a geek at the time where people say what are you going to do with your life and i said you know this this is really what i would like to do i believe in this this is sustainable this is what we should do and at the time where you know conventional fuels were the king I don't know, we've seen that in 1977. Actually, I was born in 1977. It was funny funny that I, you know, I get the chance to see 
so many Congress, so many developments that were done at the time, you know, the world crisis, you probably remember it from, from the real life. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we need to be there. We need to support. We need to see how we can develop new technology, how to club them together, how to go for this. You know, we need to change the paradigm of energy. And, you know, as you said, ideas like that, supporting, showing that it's feasible, showing that it's commercially possible, affordable, and the right option for countries is really what we would like to do. And, and we continue to, 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 of course, take those opportunities. And there's floating solar, which is, I would say, a very young um, brother from, from solar PV, but one that we think has, has very interesting pr prospects and in many countries. So, so it's definitely something that we are very glad and happy to work with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, solar attitude that we are talking about has changed so much. I did a project, I think the first ADB solar project possibly in 2001 in Mongolia. And I remember one of my senior colleagues called me and said, we are a big bank, you work for a big bank, we don't do those little things. If you want to do, we build big power station, these and that. That's, uh, that's the lecture I was given. I was also told energy efficiency, a few light bulb changing here and there, we don't do those things. We just build big. If you run out of electricity, we'll build a big power station, so you have to focus. Thank God, 20 years in the bank, I'll be in January. So now that whole conversation has changed. We do talk about large energy efficiency and we're talking about large solar, right? It's amazing. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that because that's exactly the experience. The experience that, um, well, my own experience is a bit like that. So it's glad to know that banks have also changed. And I think that was the main reason for the changes that we've seen that, you know, also banks' mentality and others have changed over time. I mean, people have also moved on. Now, with all these things happening, why has not solar thermal done much, no? CSP, what's your view on CSP, concentrated solar power? Well, that was actually one of my initial fields, and it was my field of, the, of my master thesis and um, actually my first job as well. And so I think CSP like some of the some of the good properties of PV. So first of all, it's not as democratic in terms of resource. Mm -hmm. So while the resource for solar PV is pretty much available everywhere, mm -hmm. the DNI, the direct normal irradiation, which is key for CSP, is not so democratic at all. We have clearly hot spots across the world, but you, you don't have DNI available or readily available everywhere. So that, that's the first issue related with CSP. The second one is, unlike PV, it's not as, it's not, it can't be that fast. It takes time. Um, any of the technology of CSP will take its own time to build. There is nothing as fast or even uh, close to uh, what PV is. And um, the third point on CSP, and I think, you know, I, I give the credits to, to Spain, of course. It, it is, a, I would say, a very interesting. You know, the developments in Spain in CSP were very positive. And I think Spain capitalized a lot on the technology, but we, we haven't seen it spread across the world as we have seen with PV. And, you know, the fact that, again, we kind of cornered companies on doing almost everything. So they were doing you know, the whole thing. So you can't actually buy different things from different companies and assemble together as the case with PV. That is also something that, you know, kind of stalled back a little bit CSP. 
but I, I'm the time, you know, when, when CSP was cheaper than TV. And so everyone was very interesting on CSP. We're starting looking at it. And, you know, the fact is, um, technology-wise, they, they are hard to, to improve in terms of cost. And, and we have this barrier, which I still, and that's my, let's say, my, my point against a bit the Spanish lobby on this. They, they, they stuck with those prices. And they, they lobbied, they, they, they kind of did not allow it to, to grow. And I think that kind of also led to the fact that CSP lost ground. And I think we now have an option with, with China that seems very interesting in developing CSP. I think they, CSP has a great advantage over solar PV. So the storage is much easier to be incorporated. Um, I think CSP has also tremendous applications in heat. For, for industrial processes, which, which we have seen some. But clearly, there are differences in, in solar thermal, not only CSP, but solar thermal as a whole versus solar PV. And I think we might need also something that um, was a thought over time that, you know, energy is not electricity. Electricity is energy. And I think that is something that is missing right now. I think we are back to the point where we understand that energy is electricity. Not sure that's the right path. Everyone talks about electrification. I think we are losing a lot of what renewables can do on the thermal and on the energy side. So CSP, great potential. Some countries have huge potential. They should do a lot of CSP. They don't. And, um, and, but some is not, is not as, as, as widespread as, as PV. I mean, CSP technology-wise, the molten salt and all of those, is a quite sophisticated technology because solar and a battery, maybe it's much easier to comprehend, much easier to manage, you know? And it's modular. You can source it from multiple suppliers. I think that, yes, I think, well, CSP over time tended to become that. So we've seen guys doing heliostat. We have seen guys doing the vacuum tubes. We have seen guys moving into storage as well. Um, but more the salts, actually, the, the vessels themselves, many can do it. But I think there was um, a bit of what you said. Yes, of course, there is a higher level of complexity between technologies. I think that is obvious. But I wouldn't just, you know, just because of that, was that the reason why it didn't move fast? I, I don't think that's the only reason. It might also be one reason where people, you know, if you have four, five, six months to build 100 megawatts and you have 24, 36 months to build the same 100 megawatts of CSP, and if you don't know much more about it, you might have say, why, why are you bothering? And, and that's probably why in some, you know, some countries that has actually stalled and others, um, they were not even perceived as, as, the, as the value. Let, let me give you an example. Um, it's not in Asia, it's, it's in Africa. It's a country which I actually have worked quite substantially in is Namibia. Namibia is a very interesting country. It's, it's twice the size of Germany and has around two, 2 million people. Um, and has this huge DNI resource, huge, huge. It's, it's a cold desert, few in the world. So another one is in Chile, Atacama. So they have huge uh, levels of DNI, all the way up to 3,000, which is remarkable. So they have a potential which is unique in the world. They, they rank top two uh, in terms of DNI resources just after Chile. But they, they haven't been able to develop a single CSP plan. And they have done, I've been involved myself in two feasibility studies. There have been another two feasibility studies done. And we keep on trying to develop a CSP project in the media 
which as you would imagine with 2 million people, it could be done with 100, 150 megawatts and you know, just the, the whole thing is done. And they, I think it would be a great adventure for them. But the fact that it's complex, the fact that it's not as PV, the fact that you don't hear CSP as much as you do in PV, the fact that you have to develop local content as well. And then they have the big brother South Africa that has done quite some CSP developments. So I think, you know, there are things in the industry of CSP that really don't, you know, they don't compare with PV. That, that's, that's, we have to be, we have to be honest on that. Yeah, I mean, how do you react to this? We are discussing with Turkmenistan government, you know, Turkmenistan where it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Uzbekistan down from Afghanistan, that side and Iran on the other side. One of their power station, old gas power station is open cycle. So we are discussing, one, it gives them to diversify their energy base. When we are going to rehabilitate, why can't we add to this 500 megawatt, I think, or 380 megawatt power station, maybe a 50 megawatt CSP with concentrated solar and plus the molten salt as a battery so that it can be a hybrid system. So if they have a gas supply shortfall or something, at least the molten salt gives you five, six hours, improves the overall reliability and also diversifies their energy sources. Because I was arguing because of climate change, because of thing and because uh, the future of gas, that's the next fossil fuel. There is a strategic interest, even if the same price for them to diversify because, and then we may be able to bring in some climate adaptation fund money as well. So how do you react to proposal like that? Well, I think we, we, we have seen full CSP projects becoming CSP plus PV mm-hmm. because of the economics. The, the usual augmentation project that you are talking about in terms of clubbing CSP or a CSP field with a coal power plant, in this case, a gas power plant. So it's basically to supply heat and decrease the heat needs may also have to be compared inevitably with the PV plus gas. And this is where I'm not sure CSP compares as favorably, but that would be certainly a very interesting comparison to be done and see, you know, even if the three could actually be interesting as CSP plus PV plus gas, um, you know, in a way they, 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 they work together. Um, PV provides, for example, um, electricity for the trackers that you need for the heliostats. And that is something that you need. Of course, then you can have that energy being offset by the TV and then heat provided to the gas. In a way, as you said, you still continue with gas. Um, so you don't actually take out gas and, and replace it by TV, which could not be, what could be perceived as, as something negative in Turkmenistan. That, that is again, more a political side of this. But I think the idea is has merit, um, not, not having, seen anything on DNI of Turkmenistan, uh, but definitely we need to look at, at that option and eventually also PV in the mix to see how we can actually play around with the three options. But it, it looks the right way, looks the right option. So if you are going to put a PV uh, to be hybrid with the gas or pure PV, of course, then we are talking about PV plus batteries. Well, I, I don't know how the gas supply is, but of course we could go as PV if gas can be somehow and that's possible to be displaced over whatever you need. So if you want to do kind of flat generation, the gas would topple the PV in terms of whatever is necessary. So as we know, PV ramps up until noon and then of course decreases until the afternoon. So gas can come on top of that. 
Um, that could be a one option. Um, but anyway, I don't know the profile of generation. Again, that is more the detail of the feasibility. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the idea here is uh, uh, also uh, improve the N minus one reliability because they have access to other power station coming through a new 500 kV line we are building. But in case that trips, you need then, sort of a local independence. So that's why the option is to keep the gas in parallelly there so that uh, it's completely blackout that will not be very helpful. Okay, that's interesting. Right. But anyway, I'll come back to you on that if we uh, develop further studies and some additional thinking. So you think CSP plus PV could also make sense because it will be oh, cheaper yes. and quicker, definitely. Yeah, I think we, we, we need to, uh, to be realistic. We need to make the comparison, show, inform, and of course, take a decision based on the data. If we skip um, I think this is a bit like integrated resource planning where we were not taking into consideration solar and wind and many mistakes have been done in many countries because of that. And I think we need to, to get the right information in the feasibility. So when you, when you mentioned that, it, it immediately came to my mind that we need to, uh, to take that also into consideration and, and analyze it. So basically, that, that's, that, that's the point. Oh, that's good. Thank you for that insight. Yeah, let me think about that before we go back to the client. So you see, what you see future in five years time, how, how, how does the landscape look like in your mind? 2025. I think we'll have um, what when we look more on the technical side of this, we have renewable energies becoming an increasing penetration. I think the ride to 2030 will show us whether we will miss the 2030 targets or we'll be in line. And I think by 2025, my expectation is that we will be in, tra in track. So we have seen more and more countries with more solar and wind penetrations with challenges um, coming with that. So storage is for me, the new thing in five years, we're gonna see quite a substantial market of storage by 2025. And I think tariff wise, price wise, we will see and the more developed part of the world in terms of their energy uh, markets, which is based on spot, it's still something that we, we will see whether solar and the solar periods uh, will actually get cheaper. And if we actually, we're gonna see, as I expect storage to take a lead role and we will see projects buying solar at noon to store so that they can actually generate in the evening or the non-solar uh, times. But in terms of prices, let's say that the market will decide, we'll see where we will end up. I think there are quite different projections in terms of cost, but I would say that it's still going to be very competitive. When we look out, when we look at other markets, Asian markets, I think by 2025, I think solar and wind will see more market share. And, and, and that depends a lot on some, uh, let's say markets moving or not. India has the bulk targets of 175 gigawatts by 2022. Um, we already seen or heard that uh, they want to actually go higher than that. I've, I've, I read that MTPC alone uh, wants to have 100 gigawatts of solar. So I, I think we will definitely see, um, you know, also Asia taking a lead and we don't know exactly what will happen in China. I think that the change in the US politics is, is definitely going to help development, which hasn't been the case in the last four years. So by 2025, storage um, probably will be on coming to three terawatts of, of solar and wind. And we will see, hopefully, some countries being very close to 75, 80 percent 
of full renewables for quite a substantial amount of time during the year. And, um, and of course, if, if my expectations are, are even surpassed, we will already be looking at integrating storage for seasonal shifting, which is definitely a very interesting issue. But anyway, it's, you know, technically speaking, the grid, integration of grids, further in regional integration, and able to actually, you know, countries buying from others and then, you know, wheeling through the grid. Uh, there are a couple of other technologies, but I think by 2025, we should be already seeing some major changes of how electricity is actually, uh, you know, um, produced, uh, transported or transmitted and consumed in some countries of the world in terms of renewable energy penetration. Okay, yeah, I, I agree to most of the thing that you are saying, including I think my personal view is that maybe seasonal storage is where hydrogen will come in. Maybe it's easy to store hydrogen. Of course, it's still risky, but better than batteries because batteries will be super expensive to use as a seasonal storage because countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan who has lots of hydros, but winter time all frozen. So maybe better off to use that excess spilled water as a hydrogen and store it somewhere. Coming back though, the, the 175 megawatt, gigawatt of Indian Target and others, we are all assuming that customers are going to be on the grid. They may not. Because the thing that we have not discussed is rooftop solar, off-grid solars, all appliances coming with batteries. Why do I need a grid? And then electric vehicle, we have battery on wheels. Do you think that people will stay on the grid? Why do I need to stay on a grid? My average consumption is 15 kilowatt hour a day. If I'm in a big house, 15 kilowatt hour is nothing. And the car will need another five kilowatt hour maximum, no? Hmm. Well, that, that's uh, one of the interesting questions. Um, you know, I, I look at it a bit. For me, the grid, as we know it today, is an awesome platform to provide services to clients. Mm -hmm. and because clients have no somewhere. choice. Clients have no choice. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the future. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. just, just, I'm thinking that this is a platform that reaches a lot of customers that enables a lot of services. And why should you get rid of it? Um, let me give an example. We had copper wires. Mm -hmm. Copper wires for, for telecommunication for our phones. Have they gone away? Some countries, yes. Some other countries, no the legacy network as it's called it is something that provides it's it's like completely uh, uh, what they call milk, milk the cow so it's something that has been paid repaid it's almost free and you could do so much on it that you of course you did a lot on it and then you change it to optical fibers and now you have optical fibers in all around and you will probably not get rid of optical fibers again because of the opportunity that platform brings to you so for me when i look at the grid and I fully agree what you said. If I have a big house, why am I connected to the grid? I, I give you my own example. I live in the flat where I am right now. If I take all my bill into consideration, my cost per kilowatt hour is close to 50 euro cents. People don't believe this, but it's true. If I had capacity, if I had taxes, if I had everything, I just take my whole bill, divide it by the kilowatt hours that I consume or according to my utility, comes close to 50 cents. Then you will ask me, man, are you stupid? Why don't you go solar? Well, I live in a flat. Where am I going to put my solar module? 
okay, the top of my building, yes, but I live with another 16, um, you know, neighbors, so we don't have space for everything. So, yes, so grid, is it important for us to have the grid? I think so. The services, as you mentioned right now in, in Turkmenistan, the grid fails, we have the gas. Okay, something fails, we have the grid. So I see the grid more as that, as a service provider. We have something here. You don't have storage at your home, we can provide you storage. You don't have so much space, but you can only do 50% of your needs, we can give you more. You choose not to go with that because, of course, you know, building, of course, large solar is also going to have impacts on tariffs. So you want to still be our client and, okay, we can provide you energy. So I see it more as a platform for services rather than just to sell electricity. So this is why I think grid will not go away, but I think we'll obviously go, you know, I'll give you another example of one of your projects, ADB in Sri Lanka, where we are looking at urban mini grids. Um, one of the, well, the single concessionaire in Sri Lanka that is not the main um, utility is looking at, and it has a problem. And the problem is, how do we increase our reach? How do we extend our grid in an urban env environment? And then probably, you know, Sri Lanka, not a lot of space in the streets. How do we put another line? How do we, you know, install a new transformer? And so the idea came, why don't we leverage the renewable energy that is installed in each room, the, the, the rooftops that you mentioned, either in domestic or commercial and industrial users. And why don't we leverage that on mini grids and we power a mini grid. So in a way we keep our backbone the same, but we enable more customers on our supply. And we avoid also having to backfeed all that extra and then have a problem at the grid because we are backfeeding. So why don't we actually provide kind of a community or a mini grid as they call it. And so those are the concepts that I see going forward. The grid becomes a platform for offering services in a way, not the only or the single option for electricity, but one more that enables other sources to be integrated and being offered from a prosumer point of view, as well as from in this case, a urban mini grids. So this is how I see more the grid going forward. Yeah, no, no, definitely. That's how the transition will happen as uh, because uh, not all customers are able to run away from the grid, as you said. <laughs> but having said that, a lot of new development may not connect to the grid in the first place because like uh, where I live in uh, Metro Manila, I used to be a power station. Now the whole area has been an apartment for the last 20 plus years. We have a substation. And every time I look at the substation, if somebody did a 40 story building there, th and then you need a very small substation, the building will pay for free battery for every household here. <laughs> so oh, even okay. if you somehow, you can really have a flat load curve by putting those batteries in because that right. itself, the real estate value. So I think in Western Australia, somebody used that logic and put a battery into every household just to minimize the footprint that you need to import from outside exactly. solar panels. So those sort of things will come like Afghanistan, many places, they never had landline phones. So they straightway gone into mobile. Exactly. Uh, so I see the grid will get stretched the traditional utility model has to change because uh, consumer have choice, right? The fundamental yeah. thing that we learn as an engineer that electricity is different, supply demand has to be matched and you can't store. And consumer cannot produce electricity. It has to come from 
somewhere far away. So those two things are no longer valid, right? And then you have electric car batteries on wheels running around, right? So if you do V2G, you have 100 kilowatt hour battery. So your five days a week's consumption is your car. So you are really not that stranded. So, yeah. So I think we learned a lot. Thank you very much for your insight. Uh, Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Sohil, as well. Yeah, is there anything that I should have asked you I did not ask? (laughs) No, no. It was very nice. Thank you very much for the opportunity to have this chat with you. Very interesting. And, um, well, I hope ADB and other development banks continue their work on changing from their... uh, previous views to, uh, to to more, you know, fostering renewables and with ideas as you have and others that can help us, you know, achieve what we all want to achieve, which is to stop the, the you know, climate change and, and attain sustainability. That's, I think, the main goals. No, yeah, we all try in our own way. Yes, exactly. Okay, our thank you. Way. Thank you very much, Shoyal. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us this week. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to our show. Also, leave your comments and review if you enjoyed today's episode. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at SHASNI for updates. That's S-H-A-S-N-I-E. Once again, this has been Energypreneurs connecting you to the innovative opportunities in solar power, batteries, and electric vehicles. Stay tuned.